This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend warriors of Michigan politics and government. Big Gretch is at it again. She's on the warpath. At week's end, she was mulling over how to get the entire population of Michigan to mask up face masks to heighten compliance with her executive order. She hasn't come up with any solution yet, but she's working on it, and maybe she's announced something at the 11th hour just before this program. Stay tuned. Next. Our governor vetoed bipartisan COVID-19-related tax relief bills. She axed five bills that would have provided various forms of tax relief to people and businesses, all of which received, all these bills received very strong bipartisan support. I mean, almost unanimous support, Republicans and Democrats, in both chambers of the legislature, and they were vetoed by Governor Whitmer on Wednesday. One of the bills would have extended the deadline for 2020 summer tax assessments, and another bill would have provided borrowing tools for local governments to make up those deferments. One of the bills passed the House 108 to nothing after the Senate had passed it 33 to 4. Another bill passed the House 107 to 1 after the Senate approved it 33 to 4. Again, the governor also vetoed, vetoed, excuse me, three other bills which would have allowed qualified taxpayers affected by the COVID-19 shutdown to defer some tax payments by remitting them in installments. The trio of bills passed the Senate with anywhere from 32 to 34 yes votes and the House with anywhere from 98 to 101 yes votes. Now, in her veto letters on the two main bills that I mentioned at the beginning, Whitmer wrote in her veto letter that the consensus she heard from local governments, schools and county and local treasurers was that the bills would, quote, create more problems than they solve, unquote. The idea of both bills, which were sponsored by Representative Jim Lauer, who is a Republican of Cedar Lake up in Montcalm County, was to give families and taxpayers more time to pay their taxes, particularly after COVID-19 slowed the economy to a halt and at the same time making up that deferred revenue for the locals. Yet Whitmer said the bills would have it so that counties would have to arrange for financing or rely on the state for short-term interest-free financing, which she said, quote, blatantly violates, unquote, the state constitution because it prohibits making the state the guarantor of county liabilities, quote, without receiving anything of value in return. The governor also said that without state backing, requiring counties to advance monies to cities and towns to make up for deferred revenue would violate the Hadley Amendments. She also raised concerns about, quote, piling hundreds of millions in uncollected taxes 
onto county budgets, unquote, which she said would leave counties with unfunded liabilities and potential layoffs. Now, Representative Lauer, who I just mentioned was the main sponsor of the two main bills, he blasted the governor's vetoes, claiming it shows she's obsessed with her own power and cares little for those suffering. Lauer's plan, remember, created property tax flexibility for those impacted by COVID-19 shutdown and haven't mentioned this yet, also dam flooding. Remember the breach in the dams of the Titabawassee River near Midland last month. Here's Lauer's statement. I'm going to quote this. Quote, this legislation passed with unanimous bipartisan support in the Michigan House and overwhelming bipartisan support in the Senate because it's the right thing to do for the people of our state. Governor Whitmer's rejection of this plan is another troubling sign that she's going it alone and refuses to work with the legislature, even on legislation that had support from nearly every member. Continuing his quote, the governor shut down businesses, caused many people to be laid off and still has not fixed her broken unemployment system. But she will not help those struggling to pay their property taxes. It doesn't make sense especially as she's threatening to shut down our economy again. It's completely unfair to struggling Michigan residents and job providers. I'm continuing here. House Bill 5761 allowed a business or residential property owner who isn't able to pay summer property taxes for this year to have those taxes deferred if they offer an affidavit stating they have been economically impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic or recent flooding caused by dam failures, both of which have led to a state of emergency declaration. And his other bill provided temporary cash flow assistance for local governments facing shortfalls because of late tax payments. Property tax payments made up a pivotal source of revenue for communities, and they are used to fund services that residents rely on. In in addition to the public health concerns related to the pandemic, breaches in the Edenville and Sanford dams along the Titabawassee River on May 19th due to heavy rain forced the evacuations of more than 10,000 Midland County residents. The Federal Emergency Management Agency labeled the flooding as a 500-year event which, according to the state, caused an estimated $175 million in damage and damaged or destroyed more than 2,500 homes, businesses, and nonprofits in Midland County alone. Aranac, Gladwin, Iosco, and Saginaw counties also were put under a state of emergency due to the flooding in addition to the city and county of Midland. Now, one thing more I'm going to add to this. The Board of State Canvassers okayed petition language and summary language for a petition seeking to overturn the 1945 Gubernatorial Emergency Powers Act invoked in part by Governor Whitmer during the COVID-19 crisis. The group calls itself Unlock Michigan, It's behind the effort to repeal the 1945 Emergency Powers Act 
And it did receive approval to form and an approved summary statement from the Board of State Canvassers early this week. The 1945 Emergency Powers Act is the one Whitmer has used that does not require legislative approval to continue a state of emergency. Another act, a 1976 act called the Emergency Powers Act, does require legislative approval to continue an emergency beyond 28 days. Whitmer has cited both laws in continuing the emergency tied to COVID-19, which has given her the power to issue executive orders related to the pandemic. And the legislature is challenging the governor's authority to do so in a lawsuit. Now, the Michigan Democratic Party put out a statement early this week after the Board of Canvassers' action saying that the Unlock Michigan petition drive is a bad idea. And it calls repealing Whitmer's emergency powers during a pandemic, quote, extremely reckless and irresponsible and doing so for political reasons is disturbing and wrong, unquote. Now, let me just mention two other things. 2006, 2013, there were initiatives put forward, the first by Brooks Patterson when he was Oakland County Executive, the second by a grassroots effort, one involving repeal of single business tax, the other late-term abortions that were put before the legislature, which can approve them without the governor's signature. That could happen again, folks, so help may be on the way for people upset about the governor's emergency powers. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and I've been thinking, and I think many of our listeners have as well over a period of time, that we're having trouble talking to each other, aren't we? Particularly about politics. And you could call this a burgeoning conversation crisis, why it's so hard to relate to your relatives and maybe even your friends, particularly during an election year. We're very fortunate to have with us somebody who really knows a lot about this subject. He's written about it. His name is Ivan Obolensky, and he's an author, and he's a Renaissance man. His novel, Eye of the Moon, won Best First Book in the fiction category in the Indie Reader Discovery Awards, and we've got him on the other line. Thank you so much, Ivan Obolensky, for being our guest on The Political Insider. Thank you, Bill. Love to be here. Well, now let me just ask you, uh, what about this so-called conversation crisis? Am I exaggerating? Am I wrong? I mean, what's going on? Why is it so hard to relate to people that you know very well, you may be good friends with, they may be your relatives? and particularly during an election year. Yes, that is a problem. I mean, you discuss any politics, and things are bound to get a little exciting. Um, Actually, I'll I'll cover that by starting with, um, there was a study that was done in England in the 1980s, and uh, it was basically called uh, the Information Deficit Model of Scientific Communication. Uh, The public, at least in England and to some degree in the United States, had a they were uncertain. They, you, you, they were trying to get across scientific ideas, and it just wasn't working. So they came out with this information deficit idea, and that was that uh, people didn't know stuff. 
so what they did was they build they started doing infomercials, if you would call it. So news was sort of like, well, they were going to inform you about this, that, and the other. And, and again, if you looked at a newscast you know, in the, in the past, it was mostly just plain information. Well, it turned out this didn't work. And uh, what happened was, uh, and rather than people having a deficit, um, they had uh, their own ideas on whatever it is anybody was talking about, and they had opinions. And this was also further substantiated, I suppose, by uh, there was a gentleman named Carl Friston, uh, who is a neuro neurological scientist in England. He does a lot with artificial intelligence. And his idea, which he put forward, was that um, a person, and then if you were teaching a computer to how do you, how does it, how do you teach it? Well, what, a com what he figured out was that in order to learn, you take information that you already have, and then you try to take any new information and align it with that. So basically what you're running into in any political conversation is some sort of a fixed idea. There is an, a, there is an opinion. And oftentimes that opinion has a lot of emotion attached to it, too. So, you know, so what do you do? And, and, and that's an interesting one. Um, my best, you know, practice on this is to shut up and listen. Uh, people will talk, and it may be quite some time as they go on and on about this person, that person, how I hate this and how I hate that. But eventually, they sort of run out of steam. And um, then you have to address it sideways. You know, if you want to change anybody's mind or even have an opinion, you have to get through all of that and then be able to converse. And uh, Ben Franklin was very good, and you know, because he was a very contentious individual, and he figured out that um, the best way to do that is to ask questions. And oftentimes, if your questions are smart enough, the other person, person will reexamine their opinions and, um, you know, perhaps even shift it just enough to, you know, to not be so solid about it. And, and, and then you can start a dialogue and, and things go a little better. And that's, that's basically what I've found out to be true. In other words, don't confront people people with strong opinions uh, when you get into a conversation. Don't blast them with what you think. Uh, start soft, uh, subtle, uh, from subtle. left field. And, you know, as you say, start asking questions. Draw them out. Let them talk. And then as things progress in the conversation, you'll find little niches where you can creep in <laughs> with your own uh, <laughs> suggestions or questions or ideas, right? That is totally correct. Um, you have to take the indirect approach. A full frontal assault isn't going to work. And it's very interesting on how this, um, that whole study has shaped how television is. If you notice, everybody, it's all talking heads now. Right. And that was one of the reasons why, because it was founded people, they, the only thing they actually reacted to was opinions. Right. And that's what they listened to. They didn't. And if the opinion aligned with what they thought, then you were pretty much good to go. So if you have a, a one opinion on one way and another opinion on another way, and you have two heads talking, you know, everybody's interested because one people go, oh, yeah, I believe that one. And then the other guy goes, I believe that one. And everybody goes, oh, I was so informed. <laughs> yeah, well, let me ask you, you started out mentioning the 1980s. Now, that's you know, getting back there in time. I mean, we're talking 30, 40 years ago. Do you feel that up until that time, the general public was more open-minded about things that they heard, particularly related to politics, 
Uh, they could accept opinions or things they heard in the news media at face value. But beginning at that time, uh, things started to shift. You got these talking heads. You got polarized combatants on TV and radio arguing over issues from completely different points of view. And the media has kind of fed this. And, and so it's exacerbated any kind of division of opinion that might have been lurking in the back of somebody's mind in the 70s or 60s or earlier, but didn't really want to come out and discuss it that way. And this kind of gave the general public license to say, you know what, I can have strong opinions on things and I can come out and say what I want to say, and I'm just going to blast away and uh, who cares what the person I'm talking to thinks? I don't really want to learn anything from them anymore. I want to tell them things. That's exactly right. And a lot of that has to do with um, the nature of power in the world right now. Uh, when you have, I mean, if you look at propaganda and how that really started, and propaganda started, of course, in, back in Greece, but it was mostly because you had factionalization and many, many disparate groups of landowners, and they had their own agendas. And where you have a splintering of power, you have um, a lot of factionalization and a lot of propaganda. Propaganda tends to rise, particularly when you have power either being leached away in some way or it's dispersed amongst many. And uh, you can see that in the world today, a part of the fact I think the Internet had a lot to do with that. Um, because the power went away from the go it is with the government, but it's more now with who's got the biggest network. I mean, that's where the power is. And, um, you know, again, there was a lot of stuff done on stock prices. I mean, that was when I was uh, in the financial markets. I'd go, why is Google going up so much? It shouldn't be. But, you know, or why do you have a tech company all of a sudden valued way above everything else? Well, it had to do with the number of contacts and the number of uh, basically contacts that they had and the number of communication lines that have been strung. And that turned out to be the power of that was, uh, was an exponential function rather than just a straight line thing. And, and it made a big difference in the sense that anybody who has a network has more power in this society than before. And if you look at, well, where's the biggest network? You now know where the power structure in this planet is right now. And... Um, that's an interesting one, but if you notice, there's a lot of it. Okay, we're going to come back in a minute and continue this. we got to take a short break. We will be right back. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back with Ivan Obolensky, uh, who has spent a lot of time studying simple conversation between human beings, individuals, and why over the last 30 to 40 years in particular, it's gotten more and more difficult to be able to relate to your relatives and your friends, particularly on matters of politics during an election year. Uh, Ivan Obolensky is an author. And he wrote a novel. Uh, he tells me he's working on a sequel. The novel was Eye of the Moon, and it won the best first book in the fiction category in the Indie Reader Discovery Awards. Ivan Obolensky, thanks for being our guest once again. 
we were talking when we had to take a break about, uh, in part, social media, uh, the Internet, uh, Facebook, uh, you know, Instagram, anything you can think of, tweets, Twitter, obviously. Uh, Hasn't that really uh, exacerbated the problem of communication between individuals uh, trying to keep objective, open-minded status in their conversations with their fellow citizens? Oh, I think it has, absolutely. And I think one of the reasons for that is the shortening, I suppose, of communication um, in the sense that um, you've gone much more towards the soundbite. And remember, one of the things about any piece of information um, Kuhn, who uh, came up with, uh, you know, the scientific revolution and what was going on, you know, uh, he came up with the idea that all data is theory-laden. That is to say, no, every data that you see or datum that you see is aligned already with an opinion of sorts. And when the, the leader, the, as the amount of information, you know, that's expressed in a text or in a tweet is less and less, it can be taken more and more out of context. And because there is no context, um, it's, first of all, it's easy to have an opinion, but even more so, you tend to just hold to that opinion because you can't understand how that information was really arrived at. And that's contextually driven. So it's one of the things about conversation is you have to have context, and that's one of the great things that happens with conversation. I mean, people say, well, why have a conversation at all? Because you're able to get a context in the sense of why does the person think the way they do? And they have reasons. And if you don't know what they are, you don't know why. And if you don't know why, you don't have all the information you need. And uh, so that's one big factor on it. The second thing, I think, with social media, was social media was never about, you know, emails and everything like that. It was always about the connections. There was a whole thing that was done in uh, Vegas having to do with card counting, which went, then went into the espionage network, believe it or not, because they started to take uh, information about people and, you know, their social security numbers, you know, pictures on driver's license, match that up. And this got into really interesting stuff. And it was turned out that what intelligence is always about is connections. What people say is not necessarily what is really important. But who they're talking to, now that is important. And, um, you know, I've always said, I must admit, I will say something very controversial at this point, because Facebook is, was probably the intelligence coup of the century, um, probably of all time, uh, when you really think about it. Because with that, you know, and if a person is on social media, you know who they're connected to. And that tells you a great deal. And that's what basically espionage is really all about. Well, let me ask you, Facebook, uh, I mean, this whole idea of Facebook friends, I mean, the idea I thought originally was supposed to be you get a network of friends, you're all liking each other, you're friendly, you're Facebook friends, and yet a lot of the stuff on Facebook is ugly and nasty. And you end up with friends or people you don't even know, apparently you become your friends. (laughs) surreptitiously and they start blasting away and then everything deteriorates what about absolutely exactly i mean and this is what happens but remember you know it's the number of contacts you have and that you know is power in the current sort of uh milieu as 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 we're milieu as we're sort of in it's like what are your contacts so any contact is better than anybody else's 
but also knowing you have a person, you can, uh, you can also influence them. I mean, you have certain public opinion leaders, and they have all their thousands of contacts, and they say something, and now you can create the opinions that you want. And again, as I said, it's all about connections and how many you have. And that's part. So you can begin to see somewhat of a, a dystopian sort of view in the sense that social media isn't all about what you, you know, posting little, you know, cats on, on whatever. It's, it's more about how do you control the opinion of people. And that's, that's how it is. And unfortunately, you know, many people say, think it's all about the content. Well, the content is not what it's really all about at all. It's all about who you're connected to. And then skewing and actually pushing that content into people's minds that um, actually conform with what they already believe. And that's how you get a, uh, you know, if you're a politician, it's, this, is, this is dream stuff. When we talk about creating meaningful conversations or restoring them, if that's even possible, that's my question. Where do we go starting now, going forward? Uh, can we get back to a time when being curious and interested instead of overpowering whoever you're talking to with your own ideas and opinions? Uh, can we ever get back to that again? Is there any hope? I think there is, although it is somewhat dubious. My thing is, and you hit upon it right there, if you're not curious about what that other person is thinking, um, then you're not going to get anywhere. And I think what has to happen is a curiosity has to be engendered on life itself and not just in a synthetic sense of now we're on the internet you know it's live one-on-one -on -one. you get far much you get much more information you get a tremendous sense of satisfaction by talking to a person and i think part of the whole covid thing as people had to stay home was you realized how valuable person-to-person -person contact really is and perhaps that might just be the reset that might push us in a better direction than we are now. You know, on college campuses, there's a lot of controversy right now over free speech. I mean, curiosity <laughs> curiosity is a natural human attribute, but it's getting to the point where, you know, if you're a curious-minded student and you want answers, you want context, you want to hear both sides or many sides of a particular story or issue, it's getting so many people are feeling that's being drowned out, uh, that somehow students and or professors are only allowed to have certain ideas and they can't express other ideas or they get fired or they get censored. Uh, what about that? Um, you know, I think it is a serious problem. I think that um, you're going to get a lot of academic silence, silenced. But, you know, we've been this place before. This is not, you know, history is, has a tendency to repeat itself. And uh, we've been in this place. And the best way to do it is, again, the indirect approach. I mean, the parable, believe it or not. And um, also as a novelist, I can say things in my novels which, you know, would be totally politically everything incorrect. But I can couch it in a way where... It makes sense because the context is there. I've got a chance to set up a story so that it actually you can, you can see it. You know, you can go, oh, that's why that person thinks, and that makes sense. And all of a sudden, you know, you hopefully shift maybe opinions and things like that. But that is, I think right now, um, you know, you're going to have to put on a helmet. So Eye of the Moon, tell us a little bit about it. We're running out of time and your sequel. 
Sure, it's um, it's a gothic mystery, um, and it's mostly about conversations. It's about conversations with between people and how, by conversing, they actually get a whole bunch of different information, which totally changes how you view people. Um, and that was really interesting. You've got people you just or you initially you like all of a sudden, or you know, you may not like them, or you people you dislike completely, and then all of a sudden you find them very interesting. And, and that, that was fascinating to me, and that's what basically this, my novel is about, because you can say truths in a novel which um, you couldn't in any other way. Oh boy, we could go on and on. I'd like to hear more about um, Eye of the Moon, and uh, look for it. I uh, assume you could probably get it through Amazon, right? That's correct. Yeah, okay. Thank you so much, Ivan Obolensky. You've done a great job of delving into the reasons why it's so hard to relate to others in conversations today and what might happen next. Thank you, Ivan Obolensky. We'll be back in a minute with another guest. This is MTN. And you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned. We've got a very interesting guest here, Dave Dudenhofer, who is dude for Congress. He's running for the Republican nomination in the 13th Congressional District in Wayne County. And boy, this is a complicated district. It is 82% Democratic. It is, I believe, about 55% African-American. I think it's one of only two districts in the country that has a current representative who is not African-American in a district that is majority African-American. The other one's in Memphis, Tennessee. Rashida Tlaib is a Palestinian-American. Dave Dufenhofer is uh, a white Caucasian running for the Republican nomination in a district that includes Redford, parts of Dearborn Heights, Detroit. It's got Ecorse. It's got Garden City. It's got Highland Park, Inkster, Melvindale, River Rouge, Romulus, Wayne, and Westland. Dave Dudenhofer, welcome to the Political Insider. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Okay. Your campaign theme is Liberty Uncompromised. You've got two Republican primary opponents. But, boy, this is a tough district for a Republican to win in. And you're not even sure who your Democratic opponent's going to be in the general election. It could be Rashida Tlaib, the incumbent, or it could be uh, Brenda Jones, who uh, has represented this district in the past, briefly, uh, in 2018. So, Tell us what you're doing, what's going on, your background, why you're running, uh, whether or not you can pull off a massive upset in November. Well, I think Donald Trump proved that a massive upset is possible, uh, even for political outsiders. So, um, you know, of course, I'm no Donald Trump, but uh, here's the story. Uh, for me, I'm, I work in the private sector. I got involved in politics in 2007, um, and then I got deeper involved as a legislative activist, both in Lansing and federally. Uh, our job was to travel the state to train activists and show them how to empower themselves to hold their elected officials accountable. In 2013, I was elected district chair for Michigan Republicans uh, in the 13th Congressional District. I've served in that capacity ever since. Uh, as you alluded to, we do have two other primary opponents, but neither one of them actually resides in the district. I'm the only Republican candidate that works and resides in this district and has a political experience. 
So I ran because, uh, to be quite frank, most Republicans that stepped up, called themselves Republicans, said they wanted to run. Uh, they started off with saying, we've got to get that Muslim out of office. And I just thought this is no way to represent the Republican Party. We can't lead with that kind of messaging. If we can't go after the red meat of her socialist policies, of her tyranny, um, then, then we shouldn't be doing this at all. We, we need to go after the red meat of socialism. And, and then, quite frankly, the Marxist ideology that she holds. So, uh, so this is why I did it. Uh, we've got grassroots on the ground. We've got grassroots support, which is key to a campaign success. I've built that grassroots trust up over a period of years of fighting side-by-side side with the grassroots on issues. Uh, and so we've got that going. We've, we've, I think, done a tremendous job raising money. We've got over 8,000 donors across the nation and the district. Uh, so we've done everything we need to do. Uh, we've opened up a campaign office. I think we're the first Republican in this district to open a live campaign office in probably 30 years that I'm going back. So we're, we're taking this seriously. We're taking the steps that we need to take to be a serious campaign. Uh, we've done some internal polling. We know that uh, Rashida is vulnerable. She's uh, polling under 30 percent amongst likely Democrat voters. I think uh, you alluded to Brenda Jones. She's within the margin of error as of a week ago. Uh, so we smell blood, and we think that uh, despite the demographics, we don't think that a Republican has really gone the whole mile and reached out across uh, different demographics uh, in the city of Detroit, the church leaders, uh, to say, hey, we've got a message that we think is consistent with your belief system, and we want to build relationships, and we want to give liberty a try, liberty uncompromised means we don't compromise on, a, on an individual liberty for anybody, regardless of background, regardless of demographic. And I think that message will go up against the, the Democrat Marxist uh, messaging that we're seeing, and you'll be able to make a clear distinction between what we're offering and what they're offering. And I think that what we're going to find is that amongst the 700,000-plus uh, residents, and I think there's 500 and 85,000 registered voters, um, the majority do not vote. I mean, it's bizarre to, to think that, but the majority just do not vote. And so we're trying to go after people who have not voted, who have not had, that, that believe that they have not had a reason to vote, and we want to give them that reason. And so that's what we're doing. We're also, we also believe that by doing this, we're helping the up-and-down ticket, and we're creating relationships. So I think it's a positive win-win all the way around. Now, you've mentioned that Rashida Tlaib is a Marxist socialist. That's the principal motivator of your candidacy. But what if Brenda Jones beats her in the primary? And remember, Rashida Tlaib was really almost kind of a freak winner in 2018 because there were a number of fairly prominent African-American candidates in the Democratic primary. They split the vote up amongst them, and she squeezed through on the rail as being— you know, the principal non-African-American candidate. But now Brenda Jones has pretty much got her one-on-one. -on -one. And what if Brenda Jones wins? Does that take the edge off your message? Is Brenda Jones just as bad as Rashida Tlaib when it comes to Marxist po socialist policies? I have no reason to think that her policies um, are, are worse than Brenda Jones, or excuse me, uh, worse than Rashida Tlaib. She, she gives no evidence of that. With that being said, um, I do have legislative activist experience. I have read through bill legislation, crafted bill legislation, corrected bill legislation. I understand the bill process. 
And I've been doing this since 2007, so much more experienced than Brenda Jones, despite the fact that she was there for a couple of months. Um, you know, the messaging would slightly change, but I think the Democrats are moving more towards that, you know, sort of Marxist ideology. And they're almost forcing or pulling the other Democrats, the moderate Democrats, that way. So I think we can safely say that still the, li- the message of liberty still goes up against um, big government Democrat messaging. And I think that we can counter whatever ideas that she puts forward by saying, hey, look, we haven't secured people's uh, uh, God-given rights through government. We haven't done the basic job of defending individual liberty. We've failed at that at all levels, Democrats and even some Republicans. And so my messaging of what I'm off would not change, um, though, you know, I do admit that between Rashida Tlaib and Brenda Jones, their ideology is completely different. And so Detroit Democrats and really Democrats across the other 11 communities within the 13th district, um, if they're voting Democrat, are going to have a real uh, challenge on their hands. And I think, um, you know, whatever happens, we're going to go forward because our message doesn't change at all. You mentioned that there are a lot of people in the 13th congressional district who just do not vote. Uh, maybe they've been discouraged. Maybe nothing excites them about the office holders of the candidacies they've seen so far. Do you feel, let's say, that there's maybe a hidden Donald Trump vote there that you can tap into among people who haven't participated but will come out and vote for you and for Trump? Oh, there's no question about that. Um, I've, you know, and, and, and you know this through doing door knocking. And that's the thing about candidates today, that too many candidates are way too lazy. They rely on marketing. They rely on television and newsprint. You know, I've got a big sign in my office that reads, win at the door. And the idea is, is that we get out and we knock doors. We listen to the residents and, you know, and not fill their heads with a bunch of, you know, political promises that we know we can't come through on. I just simply tell the volunteers, go out there, listen to what they have to say. Tell them we're not here to make wild promises. We just want to get back to the basics, secure their God-given rights, defend their individual liberty, and, and you know, and get out of the way. Let them live their best lives. And then, you know, um, when we hear that, when we get the response from people, they like the genuineness of the message, and they say to us, hey, look, we really haven't voted in the past, but, uh, you know, you might have just earned my vote. And so, you know, th- this is, I think, something that we need in, in government more of. We need more of um, people who are from the community who understand that, you know, we, we can't make wild promises that we can't keep. But if we can just get back to the basics and tell people the truth, you know, they'll respect you for that. And, uh, and I think we can motivate some people to get out there and vote. And besides us, you know, by just getting them registered, we're helping other candidates. We're helping the top of the ticket, you know, John James. We're helping the down ticket. I think that's a win-win for everybody. Yeah, Dave uh, Dudenhofer, is that what people call you, Dave, or they call you Dude most of the time? Uh, most people call me Dude. It, it really, it's a family thing. It, it's nothing made up. I mean, my both my, my father and my brother were mechanics. Uh, they had the, uh, on the, the shirt, the label on the shirt was always Dude. Uh, my uncle the same way. And then when I got into politics, uh, people just kind of picked that up. Well, remember the I Big Lebowski, the movie, The Big Lebowski, The Dude. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you got that going for you. Thank you so much for this interview. You're a great guest, Dave Dudenhofer, candidate for the Republican nomination and hopefully general election nominee for the Republican Party in the 13th Congressional District. Dave. 
Dudenhopper, thank you. Thank you. We'll be back next week with more.